passage that we're going to look at this morning in Philippians is an example of some of the more difficult passages in the New Testament to study. Not difficult in that they are complicated or the language is confusing, but difficult in the sense of how are we supposed to apply these passages? Uh, there's a lot of sections of the New Testament that are very personal. Philippians, as we stated, is one of the more personal letters of the New Testament. That is, it has a lot to do with Paul's personal life. And not just Paul, as we'll read today, some other people in the first century. There are some things in the New Testament that are about the personal lives of the people who both wrote the letters and who received the letters. And as we, reading this, you know, 2,000 years later, what are we supposed to do with these sections of Scripture about Timothy and Epaphroditus and about Paul and their personal connection? And one of the things that I hope that we will see today is these passages are not irrelevant to us. These passages matter, as all Scripture matters. We can learn from these things as well. Thus far, as we've gone through the letter of Philippians, we've seen two main themes. As we've seen in first place, joy. The joy that we experience in Christ. Philippians 1, 18 through 19. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Remember, he's writing this from prison, imprisonment. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers the help and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, the second part of this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The joy that we have in Christ and the fellowship that we share with one another. Paul offers himself as the example of how these things connect, as we see in Paul's life the, how these ideas wove together. He had joy in large part because of his fellowship, as he's drawing on his unity with the Philippian church, his fellowship with them in a very difficult time, a struggle in his life, that really by all, by all rights should have led to despair and sorrow. And yet he still had joy. And he was also joyous because he could share that joy with others. He shows us what joy looks like even in prison. But what about unity and fellowship? How should these manifest? How should this lead to our joy? Again, the question we know about Paul and the Philippians. What about us? What do these things mean for us? Philippians 2, 14 through 18, the verses that were read just a moment ago, we're going to read these. And then as we see in the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus, how that looks in practice. What does that look like for us? Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice in you, uh, with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice in uh, with me, rather. Here's that pesky word all again. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Some versions might have without grumbling or complaining. Wouldn't it be nice if there were some sections of our lives where grumbling and disputing were justified that I could be? Some of us 
maybe I'm this way, maybe I need to say some of us in the, just me, really, I don't know, like maybe not the right word, but there's a certain amount of satisfaction, there's a certain amount of catharsis in being a complainer, isn't there? A grumbler, a disputer. Maybe you know people like this. Maybe I'm the person and I need to do better. They just are always complaining about one thing or another. And in the disputing area, it really comes to complaining about other Christians, right? Maybe you know people like this who are just always... Oh, can you believe so-and-so, what they did to me? Oh, can you believe how so-and-so acted? Can you believe what they were wearing? Can you believe, X, you know, and it just goes on and on and on and on and on. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. What does he say? Among whom you shine as lights in the world, this crooked and twisted generation. One of the things that should separate us from everyone else is the lack of grumbling and disputing that we're not complaining both about situation and about others. And again, we, we tie these into Paul's life here. Paul knows that he might be poured out as a drink offering. What does that mean? That means he might die in his service on the sacrificial offering of your faith. It would be worth it for him to die if what? If they held fast the word of life. If his work enabled them to continue to shine as lights in the world. And again, who had opportunity, who had reason to grumble and dispute if not Paul? I'm in house arrest. Oh, woe is me. Oh, think about how bad my life is. Oh, it's just so, it's just the worst. And yet, how did he start this letter? I want you to know that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the defense of the gospel. He thinks about the grumbling and disputing of those other preachers. He talks about this, right? Some of them were preaching Christ not out of uh, sincerity, but for dishonest gain. They were thinking to afflict him in his imprisonment. This was at the beginning of chapter 1. He could just complain about them, right? But what does he say? No, I'm going to rejoice even about them. Even about these people who are trying to make me feel bad in my imprisonment, I'm still going to find a cause to rejoice in that. Why? Because at least they're advancing the gospel. At least Christ is being proclaimed. We think about this idea of grumbling and disputing. We have a lot of opportunities to do that, but that does not help us hold fast to the word of life. It does not help us shine as lights in the world. We should be different. So to encourage them to have these attitudes, he reminds them of a couple of mutual friends and ministers, people who had been doing the same sort of work that Paul had been doing. They weren't apostles, but doing the same sort of work that he had been doing, who had built already established connections with the Philippians. And as we read these, we think about their connection that they shared and what that connection means for us. Philippians 2, 19 through 24, beginning with Timothy. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him. I have no one like him. We might pause at this moment to remember that there was some difficulty in Paul's life between various people. We think about the example of John Mark and his struggle with him. We think about his struggles with uh, the, the Jews throughout his ministry. There's a lot of different people that Paul had had conflicts with. And one of the ways that he endured that is people like Timothy, who enabled him 
to have this deep connection, even though there were a lot of people around Paul who he had a lot of problems with. Of course, with John Mark, he eventually had reconciliation, but with some of the others, there was never reconciliation. But Timothy was a source of joy for him. Why? I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. By what attitudes and actions did Timothy demonstrate the ideals in Philippians 2, 14 through 18? Do nothing without grumbling, or do all things without grumbling or disputing, so you may shine as lights in the world, you may hold fast to the word of truth. How did Timothy live this out? How did he help the Philippians live this out? Number one, he will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Genuinely as opposed to what? Insincerely concerned for your welfare? You ever had people in your life that, you know, they've asked how you're doing, how you doing? But it just doesn't seem like they really care, right? People who are insincerely concerned for the welfare of others, who want to appear righteous, perhaps, who want to have this sort of surface-level connection, but they're not really concerned that much with how you're doing. They're, they're not really interested in making sure that things are going well. And the question we have, of course, is this how we feel about one another? When you think about your fellow Christians, we have two questions. Number one, are you genuinely concerned for their welfare? And number two, do you, do you think they're genuinely concerned for your welfare? And, and if either of those are out of place, then we have a problem that needs to be addressed. Timothy was a great encouragement to Paul, not just because of the work that Timothy did for Paul, but because of Timothy's concern for people Paul cared about the mutual concern that we have for one another. And the more people have this attitude for one another, the better it is for everyone. He contrasts this, for they all seek their own interests. Who is he talking about the they all here? Well, I think it goes back to the people that he was talking about in his imprisonment, right? Some of the people who are preaching the gospel, not for good reasons, but to be a jerk to Paul, essentially. They're seeking their own interests. But Timothy, he's going to seek your interests. Remember what he said in Philippians 2? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant to yourselves. Look not only to your interests, but to the interests of others. What did he do that demonstrated this? Well, he was going to do a lot of traveling, a lot of walking. For us, it's hop on a plane and go over there, maybe hop in the car and drive. For them, it's a little bit more involved to go from place to place. And he was going to teach them and going to convey news of Paul to them. He was going to make sincere, genuine efforts. And what does Paul say? That I may be cheered by news of you. He wanted to know, how are you doing? Why would news of people so far away cheer Paul? Because Paul understood that his Christian walk was not just about himself. It was about other people. And how we think about other people. In the case of the Philippians, Paul couldn't just text them or call them or send them an email. He had to send Timothy to them to find out what was going on and then come back, Timothy, and tell me how it's going. And that was what was going to give him joy to cheer him up. And I think sometimes we take for granted the ease in which we can do this to find out how others are doing. What does it take for us? Well, 
in, at least in this congregation, the most effort's going to be you're going to get in your car, you're going to drive over there and find out. That's the most effort. The minimum effort is what? Shoot them a text or a phone call. To be cheered by news of you. Or maybe we don't care. That's the alternative, right? We don't care about how other people are doing. The example of Epaphroditus, 25 through 30. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. One of the things we're seeing in these examples is the connected nature of the church, that they were not just sort of isolated units. And I think this is sometimes a thing that we can struggle with. The congregations are, were not just sort of simple, isolated, all by themselves, but they had an interconnectedness about people in other places, about thinking about the church, not just as a localized unit, but as a global unit. You have heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only upon him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. But I am, uh, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. And I want to again note the joy that he feels here. If I can hear news from you, that will cheer me. But I know that if I send Epaphroditus, he can cheer you. Therefore, that you may be uh, rejoiced at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Same question here, right? By what attitudes and actions does Epaphroditus demonstrate the ideals of Philippians 2, 14 through 18? Consider the ways that Paul describes him. My brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. Five different things here. These describe someone who is part of a team slash group, right? We're all on the same side here. One of the things that's easy for us to get into the mentality of us versus them. But as we think about our, our congregation is part of a larger whole. And we're all working for the same stuff. We're all hopefully having the same end in mind that more people are going to join the team. Right? Isn't that what we want? We want our team to expand. We want our group to get larger. He was working in Philippi. That He had some personal connection clearly before this letter. They knew who he was. He had been with them at some point. We don't exactly know when all that had been taking place, but they had already knew who he was and were worried about him. They had heard that he was ill. What's going on with Epaphroditus? What's happening with him? Is he okay? And again, I think we sometimes take for granted how easy it is for us to avoid these things. Are we checking on one another? Are we finding out how each other are doing? We have a number of people who are not here today who belong to this congregation, who are members of this congregation. And are we seeking out their welfare, finding out how they're doing so that they can have joy in hearing from us and we can have joy in hearing from them? And again, if the answer is you don't care about these things, that's a sign of a heart problem, right? If you just have no care whatsoever about this, then you're lacking in the fellowship and the unity. Epaphroditus was worried that they hadn't heard. You need to tell them, Paul, tell them I'm doing okay. And then I'll go see them. And then they can have joy. And so Paul hoped that seeing him would be a cause for joy in Philippi. As, again, it should be with us as we... One of the things I think is important for us is we think about traveling. 
that you can find a congregation wherever you go, and your presence could be, even if they don't know you, now if they know you, of course, that would be a cause for joy, but even if other Christians don't know who you are, just the fact that you took time in your travels to fellowship and worship with them. I know that it's happened to me on a number of occasions as we've traveled and we've made sure as we're traveling to find a place to worship, to fellowship with, and our presence is encouraging to them. And you know what? They're, they're encouraging to us too because we see what? That wherever we are, we're doing the same things. We have the same goals. We have the same work. Is this how we act towards one another and feel about one another? After this personal correspondence, he concludes this section with the ultimate cause for joy and unity, the source of these things, Philippians 3.1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. He knows, as you've probably noticed by now, that he's repeating himself. There's a lot of repetition in Philippians. He's repeating himself, but what? He doesn't care. It doesn't trouble me to repeat myself, and it's, it's safe for you to repeat this. I'm going to say it over and over again. Rejoice in the Lord. Behind the connection these three men shared, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, there was one source of connection and joy, and that was the Lord. He was the cause of their unity and fellowship. When we accept and internalize the joyous truth of the gospel, the joy in the Lord, it should not just affect our individual lives, but how we relate to one another. Everything should change when we encounter the joy of Jesus. The joy that is found ultimately in what? In common salvation, right? That you and I are saved together. I have salvation, but so do you. Why do I have salvation? Because of what Jesus did. That I rejoice in his example for us. That was what Paul's point in, in chapter 2 was, right? Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's what he just said before this section, that we think about what Jesus did for us. And that should, in turn, affect how I think about you. Why? would they grumble and dispute? They had the ultimate source of joy, salvation in Jesus. The things of this life that would cause us to grumble and dispute really are insignificant in the face of what Jesus has done for us, right? They're so infinitesimal compared to the power and salvation and joy in Jesus. Why would we grumble and and you can put complain. Why would we grumble and complain? Knowing what Jesus has done for us, what awaits us, and what he's doing in our presence now, today. And then why shouldn't they rejoice in Paul's situation? Again, Paul was making it very clear to them as they might feel sad about what's happening to Paul, but Paul's really trying to remind them we have to think about things from the perspective of eternity. That no matter what's going on in our lives, you can still rejoice in what's happening to Paul, right? Paul, he's in house arrest and, and not free. But he tells him, what? You can still rejoice in that. Why? Because I'm still advancing the gospel. I'm still doing the work of Jesus. I'm still showing others the light of Jesus. So even though I'm in a bad situation, yes, I'm still accomplishing my ultimate goal. I'm still accomplishing the ultimate goal of Jesus. And again, the question that we have for us, no matter what's going on in our lives, are we shining as the light of truth? 
in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation, he says to them, are we able to accomplish the task that Jesus set before us? And if that's the case, if we are able to advance the gospel, if we are able to show the light of Jesus, then no matter what's happening, we are winning. He calls Epaphroditus, what, a fellow soldier? A soldier of what? A soldier of the Lord, right? I'm in the Lord's army. A soldier for Jesus fighting what war, what conflict, what struggle. We're fighting against the devil, the forces of evil, against those who would reject Jesus and God. What does he say in another place? Our weapons are not weapons of this world, but ideas and thoughts. We're taking every thought captive to obedience of Christ. We're fighting against every idea that elevate itself against the knowledge of God. And if we're able to do that, then we can have joy in the Lord no matter what's going on. Because as we look around, you see fellow soldiers. Do you think of one another as fellow soldiers? As you're looking around and seeing about, thinking about the congregation here, we're striving together. Joy and unity, as we conclude, are as much about the things we don't do, grumbling and disputing, as the things that we do, rejoicing in each other and in the Lord. If we demonstrate concern for one another, genuine concern for each other's welfare, if we demonstrate that we care how one another are doing, not just physically, but spiritually, think about that contrast. Yeah, it's all well and good, and I hope we're thinking about how can we help one another physically. You know, we have different illnesses or different job situations or different struggles in our lives. But are we thinking about the welfare of our spiritual selves? And so we offer the invitation again. If you're struggling, if you have difficulty, you have two options before you. One is to grumble and dispute, and, and maybe you're doing that, and others, maybe you're just doing it in, in your mind, just thinking about how horrible things are in your life. Your other option is to ask for help, to come forward and seek assistance, because we have genuine care for you, I hope. And as we think about the ultimate goal here, to advance the gospel, one of the ways we do that is hopefully sharing the message of salvation with you, that you can become a child of God, to come out of the crooked and twisted generation and be part of the fellowship of God's church, to be united with him in immersion, to confess our sins, to repent of the things that we were doing. You could do that today as well. Come while we stand and sing.